All right, let's take a look at uh, church history tonight, part two of Martin Luther. Before we do, let's pray. Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, thank you for this gathering tonight. Thank you for your church. Thank you that we can be a part of it. I pray that you would bless our time tonight as we look at the history of the church and the times of Martin Luther. I pray that you would bless us, bless our time uh, in this time period as we look at this 500 years ago and uh, what transpired. May we be inspired by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. You having fun? Having fun with the Reformation? Yes, yes. Okay. All right. All right. A couple of you already yawning. We'll make sure this is not going to put you to sleep tonight. I won't call you out, but two or three times. History of the Christian Church. All right, last week I left you with a few names. Here's just names of the Reformation people, of many of them. They're not the ones. Desiderius Erasmus of Rotterdam. You just got to like to say that. That's a great curse word to say after you've missed a three-foot putt. Desiderius Erasmus of Rotterdam. <sighs> it works every time. Martin Luther, Oleg Zwingli, John Calvin, John Knox, Henry VIII, Thomas Cranmer, William Tyndale, a host of others. These are the ones we, we typically bring up when we talk about that. Tonight, let's look at uh, the second part of Martin Luther. You'll recall 1517, October 31st, uh, in Wittenberg, Germany, Martin Luther, who was a monk, went and nailed 95 theses, or just points of discussion to the, to the door of the Wittenberg church. And uh, this was kind of like a tack board. It's where everyone did it. It wasn't anything unusual. Let's discuss these things. He was upset about some things. Thought some things needed to be hashed out. Um, he ended up in a debate, or what he thought would be a debate, with uh, Cardinal Cajetan. Cardinal Cajetan thought that had Luther just lay down before me and just say, I recant. Well, people like Luther don't say, I recant, unless you can prove to them that what they said was wrong. And so he escapes. He uh, argues with this cardinal. The cardinal's frustrated. Luther leaves town. In 1519, he enters into a debate. Uh, Actually, after this, I wanted to show you just a little bit of animation. On October 31st, he nailed the theses uh, to uh, the church of the Wittenberg door. In response, you want to see that again? In response, Pope Leo X declared, Arise, O Lord, a wild pig has invaded the Lord's vineyard. Um, a wild pig, that's what they thought of Martin Luther. And, and it's amazing because all the man was doing was saying, that's not what the Bible says. That's it. Today, we can get the same amount of trouble. In any country, and now it's moving its way to the southern United States. Just, here's what the Bible says. I didn't write it. Here's what it says. In 1519, a debate. You know, we had the one in 1517 with Cardinal Cogetan, which is just, Martin, just say, I'm sorry. This is going to be a debate. The University of Leipzig between Luther and a man named John Eck. And you can see it's just not far from Wittenberg there on the map. Eck says, I see that you are following the damned and pestiferous errors of John Wycliffe. You learned a new word tonight, didn't you? Who said, it is not necessary for salvation to believe in the Roman church. It is above all others. And you are espousing the pestilent errors of John Hus, who claimed that Peter neither was nor is the head of the Holy Catholic Church. At this point, Luther doesn't really know who John Hus is. Luther said, I repulse the charge of Bohemianism. Remember, John Hus is Bohemian, Czechoslovakian, from the Czech Republic. I have never approved of their schism. Even though they did, they had divine right on their side. They ought not to have withdrawn from the church because the highest divine right is union and charity. 
But during the break, Luther sought some of Hus's writings and discovered that he fully agreed with him. Mind you, Hus was invited to the debate at the Council of Constance, and he was promised by Emperor Sigismund that he would leave, don't worry, just come present it, I promise you safe passage. And they cooked the goose. That's what Hus means, the goose. They burned him at the stake. Luther will know about this. He's going to realize, look, they promised this guy and they cooked the goose. What are they going to do to me? Luther follows, he says, among the articles of Jan Hus, I find many which are plainly Christian and evangelical, which the universal church cannot condemn. As for the article that it is not necessary to believe in the Roman church superior to all others, I do not care whether this comes from Wycliffe or Hus. I know that innumerable Greeks have been saved, through, though they have never heard of this article. It is not in the power of the Roman pontiff to construct new articles of faith. Now, that last line is really just the fighting words. It is not within the power of the Roman pontiff to construct new articles of faith. Greeks come to faith all the time, and they didn't read Wycliffe or Hus. What's the big deal is all he's saying. No believing Christian can be coerced beyond human writ. By divine law, we are forbidden to believe anything that is not established by divine scripture or manifest reason. The council, and he's speaking of Constance, remember the councils in those days overruled the popes. The council was the number one, the council says you do it. The council of Constance did not say that all the articles were heretical. It said that some were heretical, some erroneous, some blasphemous, some were presumptuous, and some offensive to pious ears, respectively. Eck responds, whichever they were, None of them was called most Christian and evangelical. And if you defend them, then you are heretical, erroneous, blasphemous, presumptuous, and offensive to pious ears, respectively. He's kind of mocking him at this point. Luther said, let me talk German. I'm being misunderstood. I assert that a council has sometimes erred and may sometimes err. Nor has a council the, the authority to establish new articles of faith. A council cannot make divine right out of that which by nature is not divine right. Councils have contradicted each other. A simple layman armed with scripture is to be, is to that I should put, is to be believed. Yeah, I missed my B. Is to be believed above a pope or council without it. I, I look at these a thousand times and, and still miss a word. The whole point here is he's saying it doesn't matter what anyone says. It just matters what God's word says. We're all arguing and saying about all what, what this council said, what that pope said. Let's just bring it back to what the scripture says. You'd think that, that Eck would say, okay, it's a great idea. Let's, let's go with Martin Luther and see what happens. Eck says, but this is the Bohemian virus. What is the Bohemian virus? To believe the Bible above councils. This is the Bohemian virus. To attach more weight to one's own interpretation of scripture than to that of the popes and councils and doctor in the universities. When Brother Luther says that this is the true meaning of the text, the pope and the councils say, no, the brother has not understood it correctly. Then I will take the council and let the brother go. Otherwise, all the heresies will be renewed. They have all appealed to Scripture and have believed their interpretation to be correct. I put these on here so that you know that what he says to Luther, he would say to you and me. We sit in the same chair. They're saying the same thing. This is the Roman Catholic Church against people who say, we're going with what the Bible says. Oh, you pompous, arrogant Protestants. You think you know more than the popes. You think you know more than councils. No, we're just going with the Bible. We think the Bible is what we should be listening to. So it's, we would be in the same seat. 
It is rancid to say that those gathered in a council, being men, are able to err. Think about that. This is horrible that the Reverend Father against the Holy Council of Constance and the consensus of all Christians does not fear to call certain articles of Huss and Wycliffe most Christian and evangelical. Are you the only one that knows anything except for you is all the church in error? Now, I've been asked that question in debating. I mean, I went to, uh, to lunch with some old friends uh, last year, and uh, it, it came up, you know, it's, they're, they're like I'm not a preacher or anything. They've always known me. These are guys I've known, one of them since the third grade. And we're having lunch, and, and the other one just foul language. I can live with foul language, you know. And he said something about that with all his foul language about how he reveres the Holy Catholic Church. And I just kind of laughed. And he said, what, you think all, everyone in Roman Catholicism is wrong? Yeah. <laughs> I haven't been invited back to that meeting yet. I haven't. It, I thought, well, I should have expected it. So it's the same type thing. Luther said, I answer that God once spoke through the mouth of a donkey. I will tell you straight what I think. I am a Christian theologian, and I am bound not only to assert, but to defend the truth with my blood and death. I want to believe freely and to be a slave to the authority of no one, whether council, university, or pope. I will confidently confess what appears to me to be true. Whether it has been asserted by a Catholic or a heretic, whether it has been approved or reproved by a council. Did God not raise this man up for this time? Some people, we look at them in hindsight and we go, they are fantastic. But I promise you, I promise you, I, I, I suggest that Martin Luther, even in this church, would offend so many, you'd go find another one. He was that cantankerous. He was that harsh. He had that edge and he didn't care. And we're going to see some quotes from him later on that if you didn't leave on one Sunday, you're going to leave the next Sunday. <laughs> the debate settled nothing. Each side thought they had won, but Luther came to realize that he did indeed agree with the so-called bohemian heretic Jan Hus, which we looked at a couple weeks ago. Actually, um, experts on the debate is that, say that Luther theologically completely outclassed Eck. Eck didn't know what he'd gotten himself into, but Eck knew he was more worldly, and he had... Um, greater arguments on a side. So as the experts who were observing it go back and forth, who won? Mostly people think, even his enemies think that Luther won it, but Eck kind of made his way out of it uh, as the victor. And uh, at least Luther goes away going, now I know what happened to Jan Hus. And uh, probably thinking the same thing is going to happen to him. In 1520, that was 1519, Luther wrote several influential books. One of them was The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. Another one was the address to the Christian nobility, and a third, was, a third one was on the freedom of a Christian. Uh, various things he says, here's just on the particular freedom of a Christian in his book. He said, how is man both free and not free? His answer, the soul is free, our body is a servant to all. There's more to that to say, but just a brief overview. What is the one thing that the soul needs? He says faith. Who does Luther say God calls a liar? He who seeks works plus faith. So he's put these in his books, and these are the books that later on they're going to ask him to recant. The emperor will. Why should we do good works? Luther says to subdue flesh, love neighbor, serve all. How should we react to people who seek salvation by good works? Offend those who are stubborn. Avoid offending those with honest principles. You might say, well, that's not very pastoral. People always have some... Some uh, 
critique to give people that speak boldness like this, but Luther took the cake, didn't he? He was formally excommunicated in January 1521 by Pope Leo X. Um, so he was in the debate with Cardinal Cajetan, 1517, the debate with Eck in 1519, and then he's going to be held or called a heretic by Pope Leo. In those days, you've got the Pope, uh, who's Leo X, and you've got a new emperor. new emperor is going to be Charles V, and he's young, very young man. Uh, well, Luther took the papal bull of him being excommunicated. It's basically a long list of, here's why we don't like you. You are no longer part of the church. He took it out to the city, and he burned it. I mean, he didn't go pray about it. He didn't cry about it. He just burned it. And the place in Wittenberg, if you go today, is it's right there. There's a nice little flower garden stood there, and this is the place where they, where they he burned the, the papal bull. That's boldness. Finally, a new Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V of Spain, summoned Luther to appear before the imperial diet of the city of Worms, uh, or Worms, 1521, 500 miles away. Uh, a diet in those days is not uh, going on a diet, as we would say. It's, it's an assembly of, uh, of, of religious leaders, political leaders in this particular, I mean, the Diet of Worms. I mean, that's just, it doesn't get any better than that, the Diet of Worms. If you don't know history, you're going, what is the Diet of Worms? I've never tried that one. But it's not that diet. So he goes 500 miles away. And now he's going to meet before the emperor, Emperor Charles V of Spain. This is... um. Uh, what what used to be there is gone, but this is the the, the site. Uh, one of the pictures that I took when I was there. Uh, Worms is just a just a hop, skip, and a jump from Frankfurt today, a little, little south. Um, and this is kind of what's thought to be that the particular area, even inside of the old church, where it went down. The Diet wanted no debate, just a yes or no answer to two questions. How do you think Luther's going to do on yes or no questions? <laughs> Are these your books? Yes or no. Do you repudiate them? Yes or no? Yes. And his answer was, I'm going to need another day to repudiate them. He comes back. They give him a day. He goes, he prays. He comes back, and he, um, he's not going to repudiate everything in the book because he, in, in his books, because he'll even tell them, look, a lot of things in the books are there you agree with. Other things uh, even my enemies agree with. You know, they're all there, so I can't refute everything. But he said, unless it's... He, and he does say, some of the things I've written in my books are overly harsh. I've done that. And he said, I hope you'll forgive me. I repudiate the harshness of my claims. He said, but what I've said in truth, with regard to the Bible, I take back nothing. Luther asked for time, so they gave him to the next day. Next day, after a sleepless night, he managed to say a few words, pointing out that all the books were not of one kind. Martin, this is Charles V, the emperor, you have not sufficiently distinguished your works. The earlier were bad and the latter worse. <laughs> your plea to be heard from Scripture is one always made by heretics. And by the way, this isn't, I don't think this is Charles V asking him. It's his sidekick asking him these questions, but Charles is there, and these are coming from the emperor. If you mess with the emperor, by the way, he's already burned the papal bull. Uh, he is already kicked out of the church. You can die for that. Now he's got the emperor uh, Questioning him, do you, you do nothing but renew the errors of Wycliffe and Hus, Martin. Martin, how can you assume that you are the only one to understand the sense of Scripture? <clears throat> you have no right to call into question the most holy orthodox faith instituted by Christ, the perfect lawgiver, proclaimed throughout the world by the apostles, sealed by the red blood of the martyrs, confirmed by the sacred councils. Are they right? You have no right to call into question? 
we have every right to look at God's word and, and look at it critically. How many of you have ever been, you've ever heard somebody say, um, it's usually typically a Catholic, it's a Catholic view that says uh, the average layman cannot, should not read the Bible. It's dangerous in, in the hands of, of, of an average layman. In fact, Catholics will say um, some of the highest up, higher up priests can't understand the Scripture. People go away thinking that. They think the Scriptures are, are uh, uh, un, non-understandable. You used to have a neighbor, or still have the neighbor, and he lives down the street from me, and he kept telling me one time we were talking about something, he kept saying, you know, the Bible's like written in Chinese. He kept saying Chinese. I said, no, it's actually in English. But it's like Chinese. I said, have you ever read it? It's not that way at all. Uh, I was listening to, uh, many of you may have heard this, if you look for uh, uh, one of those uh, Israel, um, we see Jews come to, to know Christ, um, one for Israel, I think it's called. And this one particular guy, he said, he's a rabbi, he's got, he's got looks, has the look of a Jew. He said, all my life I was told that Jesus was an Italian. Why would, why would they think Jesus was an Italian? Yeah, that for one, because they hadn't read the Bible. Roman church is in Italy. That's where the, So these Jews thinking that, that, that Jesus is an Italian. Not that there's anything wrong with being Italian, but he's not Italian. Uh, that it was written by Greeks. The New Testament was written by Greeks. And this, this guy, he says, uh, this Jewish man, he said, so what I did was I turned to Matthew. The first words of the Gospel of Matthew. It says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right there he said, I was hooked. He's the son of King David, the son of Abraham. Jews revere these men. And then he goes down and he sees the, this, this thing that most people, they look at and they go, oh, it's a, it's a genealogy. I'm not reading the Bible. This is what brought this man to know Christ. And by the way, when you read a genealogy, it's like reading Us magazine, People magazine. Because every person in it is full of filth and X-rated garbage, and yet here's the line of the Christ, God working through grace to save. Isn't that awesome? Well, this is, what, this is the way people view the Bible. It, they're told wrong things. Jesus was an Italian. It was written by Greeks. You can't believe the Bible. You have to put that in the hands of the higher-ups. Martin's saying, no, you can read it, and everyone can understand it. So he says, it's defined by the church in which all our fathers believed until death in which we are now forbidden by the Pope and by the emperor to discuss, lest there be no end of debate. This is the emperor talking. I ask you, Martin, answer candidly and without horns. <laughs> they know him well, don't they? Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? And the silence in the room must have been deafening. Since then, your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will reply. I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Could you say that knowing you're about to die? He had every expectation they're going to kill him. He knows what happened to Janhus. He knows what happens when you burn a papal bull and now you're standing before the emperor and you tell him, no, I'm not repudiating, I'm not recanting. I cannot and will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me, amen, here I am, I can do no otherwise. There it is. And there he is, stood before it. Now, how did he get away? How did he escape? Here's the thing. There was this, the beautiful thing of the time of the Reformation is that there was all kinds of political intrigue going on. Not only among the popes, but among the emperors. 
Charles V is emperor, but before he became emperor, he was fighting with Francis I of France. And they were, they were going back and forth on whether on who should be the next emperor. So France and, and Spain, and yet you've got German, uh, the council is in Germany, the old Holy Roman Empire. Um, you also got this guy, I told you last week, his name is Frederick the Wise, or Frederick of Saxony. Frederick of Saxony was also up there to be the next emperor. They loved him. So, but Frederick of Saxony, what they don't know, loves Martin Luther. He's believing Martin Luther. He believes everything Martin Luther has said. And so he's going to protect Martin Luther. So knowing that Luther is going to get out of town, Frederick of Saxony has created, has uh, called some of his guys and, and told them, as Luther leaves, before they get him, intercept him and take him somewhere that I don't even know where he is. This is what Frederick does. These are these people in history that you don't necessarily know about, you haven't heard about unless you've read your church history. Frederick of Saxony is the one that kept him from being intercepted or uh, killed. On his way back to Wittenberg, Frederick the Wise of Saxony had some of his men abduct Luther before he was arrested and killed, as Hus had been. Frederick and his men did hid Luther for almost a year in this Wartburg Castle. These are my pictures. Uh, it's happened there. Uh, walk up everywhere you go. There's castle everywhere in, in Germany, and you have to walk up long, huge hills and mountains to get to them. They are absolutely gorgeous, and there's no bathrooms in them either. So, uh, learn that. I mean, Europe doesn't know anything about bathrooms, and, and when they do give you one, you have to pay for it. Uh, but uh, he's going to be hiding out in this castle. Uh, here's the inside. Uh, another good picture of it. He was uh, Junker Georg. He grows a beard, uh, and he's dressed as a knight because he is in hiding. Uh, and the movie, I think I saw, if you saw the movie Luther, he, he admits to uh, um, the food they gave him just went right through him, which I, I won't say what that is. You know what that means. But uh, uh, he was there for a couple of years by himself. It was not a good time, but he was being hidden. While in the Wartburg, Luther translated the New Testament into German in this room. Another one of my pictures, you can go in, it's just set up that way. I think it's interesting because there's a picture of Martin Luther right up above that, that desk, but there you can see it. Um, you know, I'm thinking about getting a portrait of me right above my desk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Throwing darts at it, that's right. It took him two years to translate um, the, uh, the Greek text into uh, the German language, ten years to do the Old Testament, but this transformed the German language. It made it, uh, kind of put it on the map, as it were. Luther says, if you are a priest, and he writes to his good buddy Philip Melanchthon from, uh, from the, the castle, and, and he says, if you are a preacher of grace, then preach a true and not a fictitious grace. If grace is true, then you must bear a true and not a fictitious sin. God does not save people who are only fictitious sinners. Be a sinner and sin boldly, but believe and rejoice in Christ even more boldly, for he is victorious over sin, death, and the world. As long as we are here in this world, we have to sin. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, it's, it could seem like license, and this is why later on we'll see he gets attacked as being an antinomian, meaning against any laws. Uh, but I, I think if you ever read Luther, he was bombastic. He would say things in hyperbole. Look, sin's not fictitious. Sin boldly. For grace to be bold, you've got to sin boldly. Is he saying do it so you can be forgiven? Not at all. Uh, I think he's being somewhat ironic. When Luther's colleagues thought Luther was dead, and no one really knew where he was, except those who had kidnapped him, they continued the Reformation in Wittenberg without him. And it didn't necessarily go too well. 
Uh, Andreas Karlstadt, who was a friend of Luther, later a bit of a foe, celebrated the first Protestant communion service in this church while Luther was in the Wartburg. If you go to Wittenberg, it's a really quaint town. Uh, good coffee and uh, even the hotel and go around and you see these places. All these places are there and intact. It's beautiful. Um, glad I got to go there, but uh, this is one of the, um, this is where the first communion service was held without Luther. In nearby Zwickau, hold on. In nearby Zwickau, radical reformers were supposedly receiving new revelations from God. Charismatics are rearing their ugly heads again, saying that Christians should overthrow the old Catholic idolatry. Well, Luther's not there to stop them. Uh, some Zwickau prophets came to Wittenberg and inspired the students to destroy sacred objects of Catholic worship. They broke into the parish church, destroying windows, chalices, painting statues. Now, does this change people's hearts? Just, yeah, makes makes them a little bit more angry. Uh, here's a picture of uh, it's called a it's called a pieta or pieta. It's a picture of a sculpture of, of Mary holding Jesus, and uh, they just cut the, the head legs off. And uh, it's to them it was a graven image. And isn't it a graven image? Thou shalt have no graven images. Yeah, even so, people do, don't they? Did Mary hold her son like that? We don't have any, don't have any scripture of it. But uh, anyway, this is what they did. So we'll knock that off, and that that should change the hearts of the Catholics. There, let's do that. Still disguised as a knight, Luther rode through hostile Catholic territory and returned to Wittenberg, uh, where he came across this atrocity. He restored order in Wittenberg, arguing that Christians who know the truth should be patient with Catholics still stuck in superstition. No one can be forced to believe the truth. Now, that's a pastoral heart there. He said, we must have love. Here, dear friends, have you not grievously failed? I see no signs of love among you. Follow me. I have never been a destroyer. I was also the very first whom God called to this work. Let us feed others with the milk which we have received until they too become strong in faith. You don't have to go around killing people to get them to convert. Or destroying property. He said, give men time. I took three years of constant study, reflection, and discussion to arrive where I am now. Can the common man, untutored in such matters, be expected to move in the same direction in three months? Do not suppose that abuses are eliminated by destroying the object which is abused. Amazing some of the simple things that need to be said, um, that needed to be said then, even now. He says, men can go wrong with wine and women. Shall we then proceed to abolish wine and women? Isn't that a great point? See how much God has been able to accomplish through me. Though I did no more than pray and preach, the word did it all. Had I wished, I might have started a conflagration at Worms. But while I sat still and drank beer with Philip and Amsdorf, God dealt the papacy a mighty blow. Just things like that, you think, I don't know if we'd let... If you're a Baptist, Luther can't come into your church. If you're Church of Christ, David can't bring his ten-stringed instrument into your church. It's just some of the things that he was a beer drinker. Um, sat with, <laughs> I sat with, that's his buddy Philip Melanchthon. I sat and drank beer with him and Amsdorf. Luther led the church from Wittenberg for the next two decades. He sought to remove from the Catholic church those things that were unscriptural. Later, Luther helped a group of nuns escape from a convent near Leipzig. 
brought them to Wittenberg and found husbands for them. This is major, finding husbands for, for nuns. One nun, Katharina von Bora, was picky about the husband she would accept. Good for her. <laughs> Ladies, you should be picky about the husband you accept. She announced that she was willing to marry Luther himself, who had Luther himself, who had no intention at the time of marrying. Believing he would be martyred soon, Luther went ahead and married Catherine. <laughs> For at least two reasons. His father wanted him to, and he knew it would spite the Pope. He was 41, she was 25, I think. Luther said, I would not exchange Katie for France. He should have stopped there. Because God gave her to me, and other women have even worse faults. <laughs> Just should have stopped at France, right? Luther and Katie were married in 1525. She was 26. He was 41. They had six children. Hans, Elizabeth, Magdalene, Martin, Paul, Margaret. All, all historians say that he was enamored by his children, a wonderful father, and a great husband too. Um, one of those guys that could be very mean and cantankerous as a pastor, but loving uh, at home. Loved his children, especially his daughters. At least as historians say. Here's their home, still there. One of my pictures there. Luther was still living in what used to be called, what used to be the Augustinian Monastery, which became their home. Uh, this picture I was able to take, it's all cleaned up. This is just, we believe it's just like it, it was in his day. Its room is preserved as it was in their day. It's their living room and dining room, all in one. Uh, how about that? Isn't that nice? That's very well preserved. Neat to walk around a place where they were. Luther appreciated music, playing the lute and writing hymns and tunes, including the words and music, to a mighty fortress is our God. That's why we love that song so much. Um, this flew in the face of the standard for music in those days, which was Gregorian chants. So when the United States, when what we call 7-Eleven music, tried to make its way into Baptist and Methodist churches back in the late 70s and 80s, you know, seven words 11 times, um, uh, people were up in arms then as they are now. We just need hymns. Hymns are good enough for Jesus. They're good enough for us. Uh, no, yeah, and hymns are good, but they're not. They're hymns. They're old. You know, people vamp, revamp music. If you're if you're a musician, that's okay. It's okay. Don't ever make that your argument at church. If you do, you just show yourself how immature that you are. And don't gripe about music. It's not about the style. It's not supposed to be about the style. It's about the older generation and the younger generation sitting in a room together and getting along, reading and speaking and praying words. No matter what the tune is, if there's a piano, a guitar, or if there's even, heaven forbid, a drum set. I used to have, when we first started the church, I said, there will never be drums at this church. Now, that's spoken like a good non-musician. Um, and, and then I was, it was later told to me that Lance, you know, a drum, just a little, little drum bucket that we have at the back there, but is, is excellent and very good for people who play music. It helps you keep time. So when I became a musician, quote-unquote, and when I am able to help out on the music team, it helps. The downstroke onto the, to the drum means everything. Without that drum, it, am I in time? Am I in time? So anyway, I had someone call me out on it and said, you swore you're a liar. You swore there would never be a drum in the church, and shame on you. I said, yeah. what can I say? Yeah, I, I did. I guess I lied. But, uh, just, uh, but anyway, to bring in his music, what we call old music now, 
was brand new 7-Eleven music back then to replace the Gregorian chants to have other people sing? Keep in mind, music back then, you didn't sing. It was sung by people that sung like this out in the cathedrals and everything. People just kind of sat there and listened. Now you get to sing it. And, of course, you may have heard the story about my, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, that it's an old, the tune of it comes from an old, at least it's rumored. I, I've never seen it um, attested that this is the story, but it, it goes around that the, the tune was one that uh, Luther had sung at uh, pubs while drinking. Yeah, you've heard it. I had a guy one time here at the church. He said, I tried to track it down, Lance. He said, I can't find it anywhere, uh, that that's actually the case. But it, it makes sense because he hung out at the, at the bars, even as, as a priest and all. Uh, and he just simply put the words of a mighty fortress is our God into it. So one time we had, you know, there's a, there's a version of mighty fortress is our God today uh, called the promise keepers version. Because you've got the promise keepers version. And, and uh, we were singing it here years ago. We were back when we in the gym. And our song leader was, was, doing, was doing the, the Promise Keepers version where we had a new guy that had come in and wanted to play the piano. And our, P, our typical pianist was Sharon, and Sharon said, yeah, I'm off for the week. And so we had this guy do it. He would not play the, what did he say, the satanic version <laughs> of A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I will only play. And I said, do you know that it was a, originally a bar tune? <laughs> and you're calling the new Promise Keepers? It, anyway, that guy clearly didn't work out much. Um, it's, one of the reasons, it's one of the reasons I do not call You'll never hear me call music worship It's not the worship time, it's singing time Don't ever call music worship time It can be But the worship is when we sit still and listen to the word of God Not sing songs, throw our hands in the air You may or may not like the song You may not, you ever just sing words And you don't even know what's going on You're just singing words, I don't even know what song I sung um, Some are fantastic And some are not so fantastic and I would say, entrench yourself in the words and let that be a time of prayer every Sunday. That's what music is. It's prayer time. You're talking to God. Some people just lap it up and all they just, they're entertaining themselves um, with the songs. Or they close their eyes and no one else exists. That's, this is corporate worship. Open your eyes. We're together. Close them at home. We're together. Yeah, especially when you're driving. There you go. I don't know how well you can see this. I have to get up close. He says, music is to be praised as second only to the word of God because by her, all the emotions are swayed. That is why there are so many songs and psalms. This precious gift has been bestowed on men alone to remind them that they are created to praise and magnify the Lord. Don't get me wrong. Music absolutely can be worship. Just make sure that when you're singing that it is worship before you call it worship. He says this. He said, when natural music is sharpened and polished by art... Then one begins to see with amazement the great and perfect wisdom of God in his wonderful work of music, where one, take, where one voice takes a simple part, and around it sing three, four, or five other voices, leaping, springing around about, marvelously gracing the simple part like a square dance in heaven. He who does not find this inexpressible miracle of the Lord is truly a clod. <laughs> yeah, I... I uh, I would be one of those clods. If, if, if I saw that jumping around at church, I, I would be one of those clods. But, uh, um, but absolutely, music, if done right, singing the right songs with those harmonies, it's enough. To, it does has an emotional rush to us, doesn't it? Uh, Lutheranism as a denomination of Protestant worship actually became the soil in which musicians like Bach uh, grew. Uh, he was a wonderful Christian man, uh, but that... All begun by Martin Luther himself. So much came out of that Protestant Reformation. 
Luther continued his ministry of preaching and teaching in Wittenberg at both the church there in Wittenberg and the university as a professor. His emphasis on grace caused some to label him an antinomian. Now, the word antinomian, you may come across it from time to time if you read commentaries. Uh, anti means against, as you know. Nomian, namos, is the Greek word for law. So it would be anti-law. Uh, and that would be people who just say, God is so full of grace, just grace, just do whatever. God forgives all things. No works are required. And you think, wait a minute, isn't that the Reformation? Or no works are required. But those who are saved have works. We, we are not antinomian at this church. There's more, much more to the Bible. When Jesus says, lay down your cross or take up your cross daily and follow me, deny yourselves, hate your family more than me, there are works there attached to our faith. James says what? Show me your faith by your, I'll show you my faith by my works. I have it, and it, it's the fruit and the root, the root and the fruit. Some say, well, all I need is the root. No, if the root doesn't produce a fruit, the root doesn't exist. That's what's called lordship salvation, callously spoken of today. It's just biblical salvation is all it is. So some railed against Luther for this. Here's a couple reasons. They called him Brother Soft Lie, Dr. Sit on the Fence, and the Pope of Wittenberg. Uh, here's why they called him. He got a little bit big. He relatively fat in his old age, accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, which he probably would have said, uh, yeah, <laughs> what about what of it? He said, yeah, beer is fattening. He said, you say that the temptation is heavier than you can bear and that you fear that it will drive you to despair and blasphemy. I know this wile of the devil. Whenever the devil pesters you with these thoughts, at once seek out the company of men, drink more, joke and jest, or engage in some other form of merriment. In other words, the temptation is heavier than I can bear. He's saying if you feel under the pressure of sin and you feel so broken down by it, Go have a drink. Go practice that which Jesus has freed you to do and trust in his grace. Trust it. What do you think about that? Well, that's going back to what you repented of. Um, but not, you don't have to repent of beer. I mean, you're not getting drunk, right? Um, it's not something you want to teach the kids, right? You kids, you know, listen up. Adrian, Andrea, just, I, know, I know you guys are... Was? Sure. Sure. Beer was. And, and he, but he's not just talking about drinking it because the, the water might make you sick. He's, he, look at what he's saying. He's saying if you feel like you have to be perfect, go out and be imperfect and thank God for his grace. I, I, I get his point, but I wouldn't preach it. Sometimes, he says, it is necessary to drink a little more play, jest, or even commit some sin in defiance and contempt of the devil in order not to give him the opportunity to make us unscrupulous about trifles. We shall be overcome if we worry too much about falling into some sin. So, and this is a man who sat in a cell and yelled at the devil, threw himself against the wall, constantly felt his sin. That's why he became a Protestant. That's why he, when he came across the just shall live by faith in Romans 1.17, that set him free. So he's saying, look, if you ever go back there like I once was, go have another drink. Go back and go ahead and be free. You're a sinner no matter what and enjoy the grace of God. But he's saying do it just to defy the devil. <laughs> right, look, this is not my advice. We're looking at his, whether he was an antinomian. Is he against law? So don't go away and say, did you hear me? Don't go away and say, well, Lance preaches that you should just go have more beer. 
People will do that. You know, and if somebody says, did you say that? I have to say, well, yeah, I did, but I was quoting someone else, right? These quotes would never be in a quote book of Lance Waldy. A quote book of Lance Waldy would say, watch what you read about Martin Luther. No, actually, he did. Philip Melanchthon was his right-hand guy, and Philip got on to him a lot. Philip loved him, and they all tried to kind of draw him in. Uh, I say they all. Um, some, at least Melanchthon did, and he was a little bit younger. Uh, he was soft-spoken. So he wasn't just on his own, but Martin was going to do whatever Martin wanted to do. Uh, he was just that personality, I think. Uh, but but he, did have, he did have accountability. My guess is that uh, Katie... Uh, was a was a good wife too martin you need to tone it down you know the worst part about being a preacher is going home and facing your wife i never ask her how i did that would be the dumbest question ever how do you think it went today i just just let it lie don't want to hear it and when she's quiet oh i know it's coming that that guy i've told you the joke before he he thought he preached a particularly good sermon and he was in the car, and he, this is him giving this account. He said, so I'm in the car going home with my wife. And, and uh, he, said, uh, he said, you know, expository preaching is the right thing to do, isn't it? He said, he said she didn't say anything. But Ten seconds later, he said, I followed up with, how many really good expositors do you think there are today? And she said, one fewer than you think. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ever ask your wife questions. She will tell you. My guess is that Katie did that. He says, accordingly, if the devil should say, do not drink, you should reply to him on this very account, because you forbid it, I shall drink. And what is more, I shall drink a generous amount. <laughs> what do you think my reason is for drinking wine undiluted, talking freely and eating more often, if it is not to torment and vex the devil? That's a good excuse. I've not heard that one in my office yet. Why do you drink too much? Just to vex the devil. <laughs> but Luther said it. Be careful, kids, what uh, examples you use. He says, would that I could commit some token sin simply for the sake of mocking the devil so that he might understand that I acknowledge no sin and am conscious of no sin. For I know who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, I shall be also. Now, I would say the exact opposite. If you want to spite the devil, obey Christ. Don't go engage in, in that which... The devil uses and easily foists on humankind. I mean, the devil has a tackle box with about three perfect lures. One of them is sex, one of them is money, and one of them is power. And, and those three, all he's got to do, cast out. That one didn't work, bring it back, the next one will work. next one doesn't work, the third one always will. He gets everybody with those. So don't go playing around with these, and I'm vexing the devil. Obey Christ. I don't think it's good advice, but I get him. He was that guy. Before Luther died, some accused him of <clears throat> saying it's all right to sin. He didn't say it's all right to sin. He didn't say go get drunk. Of not stressing that we should take up our crosses daily, as Jesus said, and of preaching a soft, easy Christianity in order to please people. Maybe he did. Uh, we know he did, but uh, other times he didn't. The Protestants, when a Roman Catholic prince outlawed Lutheran, Lutheranism in his territory, one group of Lutherans protested so harshly that they were dubbed Protestants. And hence, that's the word. They were protesting those Protestants. The term soon described not only Lutherans, but all other churches that separated from the Roman Catholic Church in the 1500s. So that's where that word comes from, if you didn't know. 
On February the 18th, 1546, at 3 a.m., Luther died in Eiselben, Eiselben, the town of his birth, at age 62. He was buried in the castle church under the pulpit where he preached. How about that? Don't bury me under that pulpit there. That, that I start to stink in there. That'd be good. Two weeks prior, Luther went to Eiselben to mediate a dispute between two people. Justice Jonas was at his side hours before he died, giving a detailed account of his passing in order to counter any false rumors. Some believed, many promoted this belief, that the wicked died suddenly. That way, if you died suddenly, they didn't have any... Anyone who died suddenly meant that they were wicked because God didn't give them a chance to repent. No chance to repent, the devil coming over them quickly. Though Jonas claims that Luther died peacefully, his enemies circulated that he died in a state of terror, eternally condemned. Jonas claimed Luther confessed his sins and affirmed his faith in Christ. Then he died in great peace. And so was, his death is well documented. Um, I think it was about a month before Katie knew. Uh, you know, you don't get phone calls and texts back then. You know, somebody goes away. You get, imagine that, ladies. You know, you, a month later, he's been dead for a month. I think it was a month. Lord, thank you for Martin Luther. Thank you for men like Martin Luther, for the for the wife you gave him, for the children you gave him. You taught him so much, and, uh, and you have handed that down to us. May we be as bold. May we stay orthodox. May we fear nobody, not even the devil. May we know the truth and announce it, even if it costs us our lives. May this man uh, be a hero to us. We know he's a sinner, a great sinner saved by wonderful grace. May we take the wonderful things you made him to be and mimic them in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.